From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up, is there a showdown coming on Capitol Hill? Nancy Pelosi rejected two of the Republican members of the Select Committee looking into the January 6th event at the Capitol. The topic, by the way, was discussed last night as President Biden held a town hall meeting in Cincinnati, Ohio, with CNN's Don Lemon. I don't care if you think I'm Satan reincarnated. (laughs) The fact is, you can't look at that television and say nothing happened on the 6th. You can't listen to people who say this was a peaceful march. No, I'm serious. Think about it. Think of the things being said. We'll talk about it with one of those members of Congress who Nancy Pelosi rejected, Indiana Congressman Jim Banks, in just a moment. Also, the left is always talking about the science, except on those occasions the science doesn't fit their agenda. We'll talk with uh, Dr. Marty McCary, who is uh, here to discuss the question of Do healthy children need a COVID shot? We're going to talk about that. And as we mentioned yesterday, the Republican majority in Louisiana and the legislature there failed to override Democratic Governor John Bell Edwards, his veto of the Fairness in Women's Supports Act and a constitutional concealed carry bill for law-abiding citizens. The chairman of Louisiana Republican Party uh, joins us to talk about that session. Also, the Associated Press gains access to one of the detention re-education camps in western China where Uyghurs are being held. What did they discover, and what are Chinese officials up to by granting this access? We'll talk about it with Asian expert Gordon Chang. The website, TonyPerkins.com. I encourage you once again to download the Stand Firm app. That way you can stay in contact with us. We'll uh, not only let you know when Washington Watch is coming on, but we'll give you action items when things need to happen both at the state and the national level. Again, the Stand Firm app. All right, Nancy Pelosi pushing forward with a select committee to investigate January the 6th. Not to, uh, don't worry about the fact that the Senate already looked at it, uh, but she is dead set on doing this. Well, uh, the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy put forth names of Republicans who would be a part of this committee. Nancy Pelosi rejected two of those uh, members who happen to be good friends, Jim Banks of Indiana and, of course, Jim Jordan of Ohio. Uh, The reasoning? Well, we're going to find out. Joining us now is uh, Jim Banks, chairman of the Republican Study Committee. And uh, as I mentioned, from the state of Indiana, Jim, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Tony, good to be with you. So uh, let's talk about uh, why this occurred. What, what, what's going on here? What's happening? Well, Nancy Pelosi proved uh, what we said all along. Uh, just, to, just to be blunt, uh, we said at the beginning this was a political sham, a stunt by the Democrats to distract from everything going on in the country today. Democrats don't want to talk about rising crime waves around the country, inflation, uh, rampant and growing. They don't want to talk about the border crisis. They don't want to talk about the anti-Americanism and critical race theory that's being taught in our institutions and in our schools. They want to talk about Donald Trump. They hate Donald Trump, but they need Donald Trump. They want to talk about Donald Trump. They want to talk about January 6th. They want to drag Republicans through the mud, and they want to drag 75 million people in America who voted for Donald Trump through the mud. That's what they want to focus on. They don't want to focus on anything else. We said that before. That's why 
all but two of us voted to reject this uh, this select committee. But when when Kevin McCarthy called me uh, on uh, on last Friday, Tony, and asked me to take on the role of being the ranking member of this uh, select committee, I told him I would do it be, because simply. I believe that there are tough questions that need to be asked that nobody's asking that Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to answer about why the Capitol was vulnerable on January 6th to begin with when we had intelligence three weeks before January 6th that told us something was going to happen on that day. And when, when, when Nancy Pelosi heard Jim Jordan and I start queuing up questions and immediately talking about how we were going to ask those tough questions, that's when she fired us. To uh, his credit. Um, the Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, did not bat an eye. It sounds like you, there's unity among Republicans that they're not going to let Nancy Pelosi call the shots for Republicans. Yeah, Kevin McCarthy's a fighter. That's one thing I appreciate about him. And when Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, called McCarthy yesterday morning and said, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not accepting Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, McCarthy said, well, if you, if you don't take those two, then we're not going to participate. We're not going to participate in a purely political sham process and legitimize it by sending Republicans if you're going to reject the names that I'm sending on our behalf. And, and I give Kevin McCarthy a lot, of, a lot of credit for taking that stance and making that very, very clear. That Pelosi is not going to – at this point, uh, they're going to move forward. But I think uh, she made a big mistake, Tony. I think by rejecting the Republican name, she's – made very clear what we were saying all along. This was never supposed to be a serious effort to stop something like January 6th from ever happening again. This is all about pure partisan political uh, uh, political process that distracts from uh, the things that they don't want to talk about. Now, uh, Jim, I mentioned earlier that the Senate uh, a month and a half, almost maybe two months ago, uh, had a bipartisan um, look into the January 6th event. So what does she think that she'll accomplish um, by doing something that's already been done in a bipartisan manner in the Senate? Yeah, it's a, that's a really important point. I mean, the, the uh, D.C. Metro Police Department has, a, has an investigation. The FBI has an investigation. The Senate has had an investigation. There have been other investigations, others that are ongoing. But the Senate, bipartisan Senate, investigation, the report that came out with it is, re- is, a, is a really important read that anyone should take a look at because, it, again, it implicates the leadership at the highest levels of the U.S. Capitol Police, a, dis- a complete disintegration of leadership and security that happened on January 6th that allowed the Capitol to be vulnerable. And the big takeaway here, Tony, is this. Who, who is at the top of the food chain in the United States Capitol? It's the Speaker of the House. She's the most most powerful person in the United States Capitol, and she is ultimately accountable for the leadership of the U.S. Capitol Police. And that, that's a big takeaway here. I know you have a, a background in law enforcement. You understand this very well. I met yesterday with the head of the U.S. Capitol Police Union, and he told, he told me and some others, this was before I, I got the news that Pelosi was, was uh, rejecting me to be a part of this committee, he told us that on January 6th, the rank-and-file members of the Capitol Police, who he represents, were not trained for what was going to happen on that day, they were not prepared for it. The intelligence that that the that the that the Capitol Police was sitting on uh, for three weeks, they weren't prepared for it uh, to handle the, to to act out on that intelligence, and they weren't equipped for it. They didn't have the they didn't have the best equipment available to tackle what was going to happen on January 6th because those those resources 
hadn't been provided to them. And they, they blamed the, the leadership of the Capitol Police at the time who happened to report to the Speaker of the House. Why, why would we not want that to be a part of a serious investigation, a committee effort like this to study what happened on January 6th to prevent it from happening again? That, that's a question that Speaker Pelosi has to ask. What, what is she so afraid of? Why, why, why are those tough questions not questions that we should be demanding answers to? Uh, Jim Banks, I want to thank you for joining us. I know you got, you got to run. Um, I, I think this is more political theater, and I think it's going to be exposed. And um, I, I appreciate you joining us. Appreciate all the work you do on the uh, Republican Study Committee as well. You got it. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks so much. Congressman uh, Jim Banks of uh, Indiana. I, I wanted to talk with him also about the um, president's town hall meeting last night where the president was asked, a, uh, a number of uh, questions. The good news is the economy is picking up significantly. We, we created more jobs in the first six months of my, our administration than any time in American history. No president's ever, no administration's ever created as many jobs. The vast majority of the experts, including Wall Street, are suggesting that it's un- highly unlikely that it's going to be long-term inflation that's going to get out of hand. There will be near-term inflation because everything is now trying to be picked back up. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. Um, You know, first off, I mean, you go into the job creation. Well, you're coming out of an economy that was completely shut down. So, yeah, the president's going to be creating jobs when things are opening back up because the previous administration uh, had developed a vaccine that was being rolled out. And so businesses were responding, things were opening back up, all right? But here, the thing about the inflation, we've talked about this uh, multiple times this week, and I'm going to continue to talk about it, because you can't flood the economy with this much money, right? We talked yesterday about the $1.2 trillion infrastructure, okay? Then you've got his uh, family's plan and his uh, uh, jobs plan that he's putting into place, I mean, we're talking in the neighborhood of six to seven trillion dollars, and that's not just the normal spending. That's on top of that, and that's on top of what we've already put into the economy. You cannot flood the economy with that much money and not have inflation. It's it's going to happen. For him to say that, oh, this is just short term. Not if you continue the type of spending that the Democrats are proposing. I mean, it's just, it's going to happen. You cannot evade the reality of the laws of economics. It's, it's going to happen. But I'm not the only one questioning the truthfulness of some of the things he stated. I want to play another clip of, uh, of something he said uh, on, uh, at, at the town hall meeting. Play clip number five. We have a pandemic for those who haven't gotten the vaccination. It's that basic, that simple. 10,000 people have recently died. 9,950 of them or thereabouts are people who hadn't been vaccinated. This is a simple, basic proposition. If you're vaccinated, you're not going to be hospitalized, you're not going to be in an ICU unit, and you're not going to die. 
Well, even the Associated Press did a little fact-checking of their own, and uh, in it they wrote this, quote, President Joe Biden offered an absolute guarantee Wednesday that people who get their COVID-19 vaccines are completely protected from infection, sickness, and death from the coronavirus. The reality is not that cut and dry, end quote. That's from the Associated Press. President kind of pushing uh, the bounds a little bit on the truth. Good to see the media actually fact-checking him from uh, from time to time. Um, but I'm I, we're going to talk more about this in the days ahead, but I'm really concerned about how this administration is seeking to silence any and all who would challenge their misuse of the facts. And they're teaming up with uh, big tech. Uh, we, uh, we, we saw that here where they... We had YouTube take down one of our videos as we were talking about parental rights when it comes to vaccinating children in our schools. This is uh, this is serious stuff. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised to see this program wake up in the morning and it won't be on YouTube because we've got more we're going to be talking about next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. We're coming back with lots more Washington Watch on this edition. Stay with us. reading the Bible, sometimes it can be difficult to know where to start or to understand how to apply scripture to everyday life. There are also those passages that leave people scratching their heads, wondering what some things even mean and what they're supposed to make of it. We all know that scripture is divinely inspired and given by God, and it's useful to us as God uses it to prepare and equip us to do good work for his kingdom, to grow us and to bring us closer to him. God's Word is powerful, but it shouldn't intimidate you. That's why Family Research Council offers the Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. It's a two-year plan that helps you read the Bible daily so you can stay grounded in God's truth, navigate our culture from a biblical worldview, and grow closer to God. This plan will help you to practice the discipline of reading Scripture every day so you can be transformed by God's Word. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org slash Bible. God is the author of life and has created man in His image. Therefore, we must respect the inherent dignity of every human life, from conception until natural death. That is why Family Research Council works to pass legislation that highlights this principle, including laws that protect the unborn. To keep you informed on this issue, FRC has created online maps that illustrate progress in each state on key pro-life laws. That way, you can know if your state legislators are working to protect unborn babies. 
The pro-life laws FRC tracks at the state level include those addressing late-term abortions, fetal dignity, defunding abortion businesses, and providing medical care for babies born alive after an attempted abortion. See where your state stands on pro-life abortion. Check out our pro-life maps at frc.org slash pro-life maps. Most Americans believe they have a biblical worldview, but current research shows that only 6% actually have one. This means that most of our friends and neighbors, including those who attend church, don't think about the day's moral and cultural issues through a biblical lens. Increasingly, we see the disastrous effects of a culture that has rebelled against the truth of God's Word. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. This center is an exciting new ministry created to help Christians develop and live by a biblical worldview, to understand why scriptures must be authoritative, and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. The experts at FRC's Center for Biblical Worldview provide research and resources to help prepare believers to give a biblical answer to our culture's most pressing questions. Access the center's free resources at frc.org slash worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. All right, the Biden administration is pushing to administer the COVID shot to uh, pretty much every living American. And most likely, as soon as the FDA approves usage for children under 12, which could be around October or November, they will push for kids to get the shot as well. Now, the question is, will this push be based upon the science? Now, President Biden, uh, President Biden brought up vaccines and masks at last night's town hall meeting hosted by CNN. Everyone over the age of, under the age of 12 should probably be wearing a mask in school. That's probably what's going to happen. Secondly, those over the age of 12 who are able to get vaccinated, if you're vaccinated, you shouldn't wear a mask. If you aren't vaccinated, you should be wearing a mask. Joining me now to talk about what the science says or doesn't say is Dr. Martin McCary, professor at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and School of Public Health, editor of MedPage. He wrote an article that appeared earlier this week in the Wall Street Journal on the topic of making sure we have the right data to make vaccine decisions. Dr. McCary, welcome back to the program. Great to be with you, Tony. Uh, so your, t- your article is, I think, very timely as we move toward the start of the school year. I have no doubt that children and COVID shots is going to be a topic of big discussion. You did some digging into this. You said there's a kind of a, a number that uh, the government is looking at and reporting on. What's that number and why is it significant? Yeah, so thanks for the question. Look, I am, I am very pro-vaccine. I've gotten vaccinated, encourage everybody who doesn't have immunity to get it. And remember, immunity is two forms, vaccinated or natural immunity from prior infection, something the government has ignored But when it comes to kids, we've imposed a tremendous amount of restrictions on kids for the last year and a half based on one number. And that number is 335 COVID deaths in kids under 18 during the entire pandemic. Now, I'm not downplaying that number, but has the CDC ever called the families and those doctors who took care of those kids and asked if COVID actually caused the illness? They have not. 
have they risk stratified? In other words, do what we do in that in, in public health, and that is figure out what percent of those kids had a comorbid condition and how many of them were healthy? Because we're making recommendations for healthy kids based on data that may be uh, clustered around those with comorbid conditions. They've not done that either. So they've got very sloppy data by which they're making these decisions. And by the way, 500 kids die of the common cold, RSV virus, each year. Right. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually with you on this issue of vaccines. I'm not against vaccines, but I think we should have the right data and the right information and make our personal choices. I think it should be individual choices. Uh, and I want to get into the, uh, to, to, to the issue of immunity here in a moment and, and how that works. But I want to go your research team looked into uh, apparently 40 or approximately 48,000 children under the age of 18 that had been diagnosed with COVID. Um, share with us what your information, what you uncovered as you looked at the evidence. Yeah, so we looked at 48,000 COVID cases in healthy kids. And no one, no healthy kid died. No healthy kid died of COVID. The mortality rate was zero among healthy kids. And that's what we need the CDC to be doing with that number of 335 deaths in kids under 18. Tell us how many healthy kids died, because that makes a big difference. Remember, we're imposing tremendous restrictions on them. So without, it, without that information, how can we really be making informed decisions? You brought up another issue that, for me, I've had issue with, and that is the issue of natural immunity. That's not being tracked. It's not being reported. To, to my, uh, to, from my perspective, what I've seen, it's not even being factored in to the CDC and to the federal government's policies and procedures. Yeah, what happened was they dug in early when many of us raised the point. We said, hey, wait a minute, early in the pandemic, Natural immunity appears to be pretty durable, and we need to focus the vaccine rollout on those who don't have natural immunity. Remember back in December and January, we had a very scarce vaccine supply. It was hard to get. And many of us were saying, focus on the non-immune, those who don't already have it, and we were dismissed. And guess what? Every single month we have this argument, and now natural immunity is strong a year and a half later, durable, effective, maybe more effective than vaccinated immunity, and it's going strong. So that has been one of the greatest failures of the current public health officials and administration is ignoring natural immunity from prior infection. If you have it, you probably don't need the vaccine. You can have a vaccine, but it's not required. Now, Dr. McCary, you, you, the, you talked about the vaccine being scarce, you know, last year or earlier this year. But there's still parts of the world where the vaccine is scarce and the demand is even greater. Should we not, uh, you know, in good stewardship, being, you know, more selective in who we tell you need the vaccine as opposed to those who, as you say, may have natural immunity? Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I wrote a piece a few weeks ago in The Washington Post about how we've become myopic. The ethnocentrism right now is is dominating and we're we're we look like a country of waste and excess because we are right now with the way we're stewarding the vaccine. We're paying people. California's paying one hundred and sixteen million dollars to people to get the vaccine. We're throwing millions of doses in the trash as the F, because the FDA tells us they've expired. Um, you know, we have to remember as we're talking about boosters and vaccinating every newborn in America right now, there are people dying. There's healthcare workers who are vulnerable dying overseas 
because they don't have enough supply. We got to think about the world. Uh, Dr. McCary, we're up against a break, but very quickly, uh, is this being driven more by politics than science and how we deal with COVID? I think there's an old school medical mentality, which we, we have trouble competing with them. A bunch of us go on Fox and different networks, but it's hard to compete with a few people that are making all the decisions. I think industry is driving some of this narrative, too, by the way. And I think um, people hear multiple points of view. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Marty McCary, great to talk with you. Thanks so much for uh, joining us today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. All right. I think we follow the science. I'm, I'm grateful that there are doctors out there, and you'll hear them on this program. Dr. Martin McCary, he's a professor at uh, John Hopkins, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and School of Public Health. We need to look at the. We hear this from the left. They preach it all the time. Look at the science. Follow the science. Well, okay, we are. We are. All right, when we come back, we're going to go to uh, my home state of Louisiana. As we talked about yesterday briefly on the program, the legislature there failing to override the governor's veto of some bills. We're going to be joined by the chairman of the Republican Party next. Don't go away. Are you looking for a go-to platform where you can get relevant commentary on the cultural issues of the day from a biblical perspective? Today, it can be hard to find this in light of media censorship of conservative and Christian voices. Here at Family Research Council, we believe that every American has a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. And we think it's important for you to have access to these stories. To get the facts and stories the left doesn't want you reading, head over to frc.org slash blog to check out our newest blog posts. We cover the issues you care about, all written by our experts in policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview. Our experts unpack the topics that other media platforms won't, like current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the increasingly radical shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, go to frc.org slash blog. We're seeing more and more cases of censorship and the canceling of many conservatives and Christians by big tech companies. To combat this, Family Research Council has chosen to be proactive before big tech tries to censor or cancel us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom, even if big tech tries to silence us. It's easy. You just sign up for the text alerts by texting STAND to 67742, and you'll get FRC's content straight to your phone. Again, just text STAND to 67742, and FRC will keep you looped in on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll get information on our upcoming events and programs. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for faith, family, and freedom, and keep you connected with the like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. You're listening to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So good to have you with us. All right. Yesterday we were discussing uh, a historic override, veto override session in my home state of Louisiana. The first time in uh, state's modern history that was since the, the state adopted its 1974 constitution that lawmakers 
came back into session to deal with vetoes by the governor. The governor had vetoed uh, over two dozen measures, two of which were dealt with this week in this special override session. One of them, the bill we've talked about a lot here, is the Fairness in Women's Sports Act, which failed uh, by two votes. It needed 70 votes to pass out of the House. It passed the Senate, uh, failed uh, two votes short of what it needed in the uh, in, in the House. It's got a lot of folks upset because this is something that had overwhelming support. The other measure that failed to pass actually out of the Senate uh, in the override session was a concealed handgun uh, constitutional carry for all citizens, law-abiding citizens. Joining me now to talk about what happened is the chairman of the Republican Party in the state of Louisiana, uh, Louis Gervich. Uh, Chairman, welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Tony, and it's good to hear your voice. Well, it's good to see you. Let me uh, let me ask you this, because you put out a pretty strong statement yesterday, and, and I want to commend the Republican Party for taking strong positions in this override uh, session that was held this week. Uh, it, what happened? Why did uh, why did the legislature fall short? Well, first of all, you have to take it in context. This is the first ever veto override session. The, the governor of Louisiana is one of the most powerful executives in the nation. That's in the Constitution and statutorily. To even have a veto override session is unheard of. It's never happened under this Constitution before going back. I think it took effect in 1975. So we were very fortunate to convene. So uh, the governor was fighting his tooth and nail all the time. And he also, it should be noted, that he managed to veto 28 bills, individual bills. So this is more than twice as many vetoes as he's ever done before. And they had to do with some pretty visceral, visceral stuff that uh, I think our, our activists felt very strongly about. Constitutional carry was one. Fairness in women's sports was another. But there were other bills, the election integrity bills. I mean, he just went on a rant and, and vetoed a whole bunch of bills. And he paid the price for it because this is the first time ever, ever, that we've had a uh, veto override session in Louisiana, in modern Louisiana history. Uh, Chairman Gervich, we have in the state of Louisiana, we have a, a supermajority of Republicans in the, the Senate, but not in the House. A few votes, 68 total Republicans, if I'm not mistaken, in the House. Uh, so not a supermajority there. But this is um, obviously the Republicans. This is what's set up. They're doing conservative government most of the time. That's the conflict with the governor. But a lot of disappointment, uh, quite frankly, with uh, some of the Republican leadership and Republican members. Do, do you think this is going to have some residual effect? Is you are you are we going to see this play its way out in, uh, in in future elections? This will have residual effect. I think everyone on both sides of the aisle agrees. Now, uh, there's some good in here. And let me say this, that our leadership uh, got this thing going. We convened the, the session. We have uh, a two-thirds uh, veto-proof majority in the Senate, and we were successful on the Fairness in Women's Sports Act there, or bill, I should say. And we failed by two votes in the House, but we only had uh, 69 of 105 votes. So we just barely lacked the uh, two-thirds majority. We were hoping, and our speaker told me that he has, was assured, that we would have some uh, social conservative Democrat support as well as some independents. That didn't materialize. The governor, uh, John Bell Edwards, who uh, 
purports to be a moderate of some sort, but really is not. Did an enormous amount of arm twisting, intimidation, everything else you can imagine. And at the end, we fell two votes short. But the massive majority of the uh, legislators were in favor of overriding his veto. We just didn't have the two-thirds veto requirement in one of the two houses. There was a lot of grassroots activity surrounding these bills, especially the fairness in women's sports. Again, is this a, are we seeing a, a new wave of uh, activism among citizens? This veto override session would not have occurred at all had it not been for our activists who were on this thing approximately six weeks out. They let their legislators know, Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever stripe, that this was terrifically important to them, and they got this thing going. And it took all the governor's uh, uh, intimidation tactics to, to put paid to this in this session. But there's a sea change going on here. Things that have never happened before are happening now. And this is preparing the way. You have, activists mean everything. In, in, in the political world, the new political world in which we live. It's important now more than ever before to contact your legislators, go to the meetings, make the phone calls, go to the legislative chambers, let them know where you are. Activism is supremely important. Our, our enemies uh, know this, and I think increasingly so we're of a like mind. We understand that you can push the needle with legislators and that uh, we're going to get this passed in the not-too-distant future because it's going to come up again. You can't pass bills by these margins uh, forever, and, and uh, vetoes eventually are going to fail, and we're eventually going to be successful. This is for yep. the women and the girls who, who uh, uh, this means everything to them. This, this will preserve women's sports if we know. We have to win this fight ultimately. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Chairman Lewis Gervich, thanks so much for joining us today. And, and thanks for your leadership in the Republican Party uh, in Louisiana, speaking out boldly uh, and strongly and with clarity on these issues. We appreciate it. Thanks for all you do, Tony. All right. All right, folks, uh, don't go away. We're coming back with more Washington Watch. We're going to be joined by Gordon Chang. What is religious freedom and why should you care about it? both domestically and internationally. By definition, religious freedom is the freedom to hold religious beliefs of one's choice and to live according to those beliefs. At Family Research Council, we care about religious freedom because we believe it is an inherent human right that all governments have an obligation to protect. Tragically, not all governments do. Religious persecution is a harrowing reality around the world that is not often acknowledged by the media. Even though attacks on people of all faiths continue to mount in many regions of the world, God calls Christians to care for the persecuted church, the downtrodden, and those who cannot help themselves. Therefore, we must be advocates for those persecuted for their faith. To learn more about this issue and what you can do to help, go to frc.org IRF to check out Family Research Council's latest resources on international religious freedom. Christians are called to seek after the Lord above all things. This means we must pray unceasingly, vote our biblical values, and boldly stand for truth. You can join Family Research Council and FRC Action President Tony Perkins in this mission every Wednesday as he hosts the Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ to focus their attention on the Lord in every aspect of their lives. 
Prayvote Stand will help equip you to stand for biblical truth in the midst of a confusing time in our culture. Tony is joined by experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders for this weekly program to help you see through the fog created by the biased mainstream media. This year, let's commit to pray for our nation, to stand for truth, and to seek the Lord first. To watch the Pray Vote Stand weekly broadcasts, visit PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. Want honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world? Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch. You can listen to the show whenever it works for you. Go to TonyPerkins.com to stream episodes on demand or listen by radio through American Family and Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, or independent Christian radio stations across the country. On the show, you'll hear from guests like Mike Pompeo, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Pastor Jack Hibbs, Ben Carson, Senator Josh Hawley, Sissy Graham Lynch, and more. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day by tuning into Washington Watch with Tony Perkins at TonyPerkins.com. Again, that's TonyPerkins.com. All right, folks, be sure and go to the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you. And also be sure and download the Stand Firm app. That way, you can not only be alerted to the time when Washington Watch comes on, so you don't miss it, and you can listen anywhere in the world beyond the 800 stations we're presently on. But more importantly, what we were just talking about with the chairman of the Louisiana Republican Party, when these issues, legislative issues, come up, whether it's the state or the national, if you're connected with us, we'll send you alerts so you know when to take action, what to say, who to contact. It's all right there. So go to go to the App Store and download the Stand Firm app. Earlier this year, actually it was in April, reporters with the Associated Press were given a state-led tour to China's far west Xinjiang region, and they were granted access to the Urumqi Number 3 Detention Center. Now, this is China's largest detention center and uh, possibly the largest in the world. Now, today, the AP actually published a report on what they saw, noting that it was the first Western media organization ever allowed in. Joining me now to talk about what was reported on and perhaps what wasn't and why the China a Chinese government allowed the Western journalist in is China expert Gordon Chang. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China and The Great U.S.-China Tech War. You can follow him on Twitter at Gordon G. Chang. But for now, he's with us. Gordon, welcome back to the program. Oh, well, thank you so much, Tony. All right. I was interested by this because, um, first off, I was wondering why – after all of the attention and the denials about these detention centers, would the Chinese government now allow Western journalists in? I think there's so much pressure on Beijing, on the Uyghurs, Kazakhs, and others, because this is not only genocide, but crimes against humanity, and Beijing wants to push back against that. Also remember, they're hosting the February 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, 
They don't want to boycott. And so I think this is part of a concerted public relations campaign to protect their Olympic sponsorship. Uh, that That's my take on it as well. This is uh, somewhat damage control. They're trying to con- yeah. get back in uh, controlling the message. But, I mean, this is a... Uh, a massive detention center, the largest in the country, and as I mentioned, possibly the world. It, it's, it, it covers over 220 acres. Uh, the AP suggests that this could house up to 10,000 people in this one facility, and it's just one of many. Did we learn anything from this report that we did not already know? We knew the broad uh, outlines of what the Chinese are doing in these facilities. This one was partially empty. Um, so there really wasn't very much that the AP saw in terms of Uyghurs themselves. As they point out in their report, they were not allowed to speak to the detainees. Um, the thing, though, when we think about how big this facility is, and the AP says it's about twice the area of the Vatican, it's really that this is just one of many across Xinjiang. And that means China right now, as we learned from BuzzFeed about a week ago, can detain at any one time 1.1 million people. And, and that's much gives, gives us a sense that uh, the number of Uyghurs and Kazakhs and others who've been detained is much larger than the estimates that have been produced up to now. A couple of things I found interesting in this is they, they were denying that these were re-education or training centers, that these were detention centers and pre-trial uh, holding facilities. Um, but the report actually says they just changed the names on the outside of the facilities. These were, in fact, the retraining centers that, that were previously reported on by the BBC and others. Yeah, they literally just changed the names over the door, as the AP reported. Um, but in a general sense, yes, really, they had what they told the world were re-education centers. Now they've got detention centers because they say that people there have committed crimes. Um, but you're right. It, it was really just a name change. The substance is that Beijing is continuing relentlessly to go after um, Muslim faith. And they're doing the same thing with Christians and Buddhists across the country. We've just had some detentions of Christians in the last 48 hours. So uh, we know that they've stepped up this campaign against all of faith. Gordon Chang, I also found interesting in here that they made reference to the BBC, uh, the, the Chinese uh, officials that is saying, here, I quote, see, the BBC report said that this was a re-education camp. It's not. It's a detention center. Uh, that was one of the officials with the uh, the Chinese uh, foreign ministry. The, the BBC reported back in February about the systematic rape and torture of uh, Uyghurs in these facilities. That really got to the Chinese. And that's why I think this is damage control, trying to go back and try to rewrite that narrative when, in fact, it's out there pretty broadly as to what's been happening to the Uyghurs there in Xinjiang. Yes, uh, Beijing has promoted this campaign against the BBC since that report. And it's been an across-the-board attack on, on that news organization. And so we can expect, uh, not only in this AP report, but going forward, there's going to be more attempts to take down the credibility of the BBC. I mean, they do that with all news organizations. But right now, um, they've got the British one pretty much in their crosshairs. You know, I was, uh, quite frankly, surprised and uh, encouraged by the BBC's um, reporting on what was happening, truthful reporting. And my, my concern is 
Is this an effort by China to co-op some of the Western media? Um, they always do that. So, Tony, I, I, that is certainly uh, you put your finger on it. Um, the more important dynamic going on, though, is that uh, China's just run out of arguments. And so we are going to see more of these public relations campaigns, and they're going to become less and less credible. So right now, I think most people around the world who have thought about this realize the enormity of China's crimes, because China, is what it's doing right now is comparable to what the Third Reich did prior to the mass exterminations of 1931. And in many respects, what China's doing is worse than that. The only thing that China hasn't done is mass extermination. But we know Uyghurs and others are dying in those facilities, whatever the name is, because China's been building crematoria right next to them. And that indicates that people are dying in not inconsiderable numbers. Well, we certainly know that if we take our eyes off of this and we go silent on this, they could do almost anything. We're all, we already know about the reports of the organ harvesting that's taking place among the Falun Gong and, and others. Uh, by the way, one, one reporter, one organization they're not going to let in to report on this would be Washington Watch because I'm <laughs> sanctioned, so I can't go into China. Um, but I'm hoping that the Western journalists will, will be accurate in their reporting. I, I, was, I did find this uh, very interesting. It was not, I, I don't think it was slanted either way. I just think it was factual. I just think that they have to recognize they're not going to be given access to all the facts. As you said, they did not get a chance to talk to any of the detainees, whatever they are, the retrainees or whatever they want to call them. They did not have an opportunity to talk with them and see how they were, in fact, being treated. No, and they certainly wouldn't be given that opportunity because they would have heard things which um, undercut China's narratives. We have heard from people who have been in those facilities who've been released. We've heard from people who have relatives in those facilities, and these stories um, are just horrible, I mean, horrific. And so we're not going to hear, you know, any news organization talking to people inside those facilities unless the people have been vetted and uh, speak under conditions where they've been coerced. And, and that would be wrong, I think, for any news organization to participate in a right. public relations campaign like yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Gordon Chang, I want to move a little closer to home here. I want to move to uh, to Cuba. And someone said, well, what's the connection between Cuba and China? I thought Gordon was an Asian expert on China. Well, there's a big connection because uh, yeah. China is the uh, the largest benefactor to the Cuban regime. I mean, that's where they, they get a lot of their support, but also technology. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what's been happening there in Cuba and how, like, the shutting off of the Internet was made possible by Chinese technology. Yes. Um, from the very first day of the protests, um, there have been Internet outages, and these were intended to prevent people from learning about this. Now, there have been about protests in 40 or more cities and towns. So at this point, um, Cuba is, is sort of f f fighting a losing struggle. The point here, though, is Chinese technology enabled this. You got technology from Huawei uh, and from its sister company, ZTE. Uh, Cuba has been importing the social credit system that Beijing is perfecting. Um, and so really, this is a made in China program, which the Cuban government has been using against its own people. And of course, they've been using the, the Chinese have been using their uh, propaganda 
uh, machine as they, they say this is all about America. It's because the U.S. embargo that that uh, Cuba is having this difficulty. Yes, from the very beginning of these protests, Beijing has been saying that the sole cause and the origin of the problems in Cuba is the U.S. embargo. And this has been a malicious campaign that has con- continues to this day. Uh, also, you know, China has been very much as a, propo- a proponent of these votes in the U.S. U.N. General Assembly uh, condemning the U.N. Um, embargo. The, the General Assembly this year, the 29th straight time, they voted against the U.S. Well, China is very much behind all of that push, as well as the propaganda that you referred to. When you look at all of this, uh, you, you have to look at, I think we need to look at U.S. policy towards China because they are exporting this technology to tyrannical regimes in I guess taking, you know, we say, well, we don't want to get too involved in that. Well, part of it, our, our funding of the, uh, the World Bank and the money that we put in, China is taking out. They're being treated as a third world country, a developing country, I should say. And, and so they we're, we're actually in many ways indirectly funding the work that they're doing to counter democracy in other parts of the world. Yeah, you put your finger on a critical point and maybe even the critical point, because it's not only World Bank funding for this. We've got, for instance, companies that trading with China, giving them the technology, um, facial recognition technology for these social control systems. Um, a lot of the hardware, uh, the hardware and the software comes from big U.S. tech companies. And then in a broader sense. We have our trade, our investment with China that has been actually giving China the resources to do all these things that we've talked about and technical cooperation agreements between our universities and theirs. Big giveaway of uh, the best technology in the world, often for nothing. So, you know, you go across the board. China is able to threaten the United States and others because of its access to our markets and, as you say, the World Bank. None of it adds up other than, you know, I, I think there's a con- there's a consumer portion here. Consumers in America like cheaper products. And, you know, we we, we want good products. We want them at a good price. We want a deal. And I think that is probably and correct me if I'm wrong. But my take on this is that that's China's greatest leverage over America is the consumers. And if we would begin to exercise discipline here and realize what's at stake here with these cheap products, I will tell you, our family does not buy anything from China. We look, in fact, you see this mug here in front of me. Uh, we, we had to search around to find mugs not made in China. Now, we had to pay more for it, but we're not going to do anything that's going to facilitate a regime that is oppressing people the way the Chinese Communist Party is. Yeah, and there's a lot of low-cost jurisdictions where the U.S. government, through some preferential policies, can encourage companies to locate so that those countries can provide goods at a price cheaper than China. So, for instance, Central America, the Northern Triangle, that is the source of 40 percent of the migrants pressing our southern border. Those countries were destabilized by China's accession to the World Trade Organization in 2001, when factories not only left America, but they left Central America as well. Now, if we can encourage those factories to come back, we certainly make our neighborhoods safer and we preserve our border. There's so many things we can do. And one other thing, Tony, if we encourage companies to manufacture in our continent, um, 
That's reducing carbon emissions because 15 of those large container ships, they produce as much carbon as all the world's cars. So we can have so many wins. Um, we can go after China. We can clean the environment. We can preserve peace and stability in our own border. All of this by getting com- uh, companies, you know, manufacturing here. Yes, and it uh, and it provides greater stability for the supply chain, especially Absolutely. as we found in this last year when we're talking about medical supplies. We don't want to be dependent upon uh, the creator of the COVID virus to help us overcome the COVID virus. No, absolutely, uh, because China tried to use and, and actually did use its uh, position in supply chains for personal protective equipment, and they threatened uh, to throw us into what they said was a mighty sea of coronavirus. You know, China tries to use its position in supply chains, not only with protective equipment, but across the board, um, rare earths, for instance. So right. we've got to make sure we're more resilient. Gordon Chang, always great to talk with you. You're a great guest, uh, knowledgeable, love to talk with you. Thanks so much for being on today. Oh, well, thank you so much, Tony. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Uh, Gordon Chang, to find out more, go to the website, TonyPerkins.com, and uh, follow the links over. He, he does know what he's talking about. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Gordon G. Chang. Folks, check out the website, TonyPerkins.com. Lots of resources there for you as well. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Been great talking with you. Until next time, I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, stand next. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.